Sally mentioned last night how um, in the way that the Dhamma has been taught largely in the West, we tend to focus on kind of the end of the three pillars, dana, sila, bhavana. We tended to focus more on bhavana and kind of throw in sila and dana later on. So I thought tonight I want to actually talk about generosity, about dana, and the way that the Buddha brought it into his teaching. Remember I, I read the short refrain in one of my talks, a refrain from the unskillful, do good, purify the mind. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. And of course, we think of uh, a meditation practice, both insight and um, shamatha absorption meditation practices, both work towards purifying the mind, which means you know, changing the habits from greed, from aversion, from hatred, from uh, confusion, to, to you know, purifying those habits. But also, really everything the Buddha taught was uh, towards uh, awakening, towards purifying the mind. And as far as I can tell, I mean, I haven't read every single thing he, he's supposed to have said, but nothing was kind of extraneous or just for the heck of it or, you know, about something else. Everything's about purifying the mind. It's not only meditation. And so, as Sally said, the three pillars are dana, generosity, sila, conscious, non-harming, virtuous conduct, and bhavana, mental cultivation. So I want to talk about generosity tonight. Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's a great, uh, one of the great scholars and translators of the Pali into English of our generation, um, is giving it in a short, um, he just knows all the suttas basically, he just knows them all. But he's talking about the practice of giving and the special place it has in the way that the Buddha talks about it as being, in a sense, the foundation, the seed of our spiritual development. And it really is the foundation. It says in the suttas we read over and over again that talk on giving was invariably the first topic that the Buddha talked about to people. And there are, there's many suttas, and I'll read part of one later, where when he first meets someone, he gives what's called a graduated exposition basically bringing their mind into enough clarity and upliftment until it's actually ready to hear the deepest Dhamma. And he always starts with generosity, talk on generosity. So it's the, it's, the aim of it isn't to say you should be a generous person. You'll think, yeah, that's good, help people in need, let's give, that's good. But it's not just that. It's really a way, the foundation of the pure-hearted mind that allows us to open to unfold into freedom, into liberation. So while the Gubodi points out that giving, generosity, dana, is not one of the steps in the Eightfold Path, which is, seems to be more the actual moment-to-moment practice of looking at the mind, he says it's actually the precursor, the foundation, the preparation that underlies and quietly supports the entire endeavor to free the mind from confusion. And then he just goes through, said it's not on the Eightfold Path, but he just names some of the list. The first topic in the graduated teachings, he always does. It's the first of the three bases of meritorious deeds. It's the first of the four means of benefiting others. 
and it's the first of the ten paramis or perfections. And these paramis or perfections, as you know, you know, they're the, the virtues, the beautiful qualities of mind that are cultivated in the Theravada tradition. They're cultivated by all beings who have the aspiration not only to awaken, but to come into birth as uh, an awakened Buddha who can then so benefit others. So the perfections of those. But generosity is the first. So just to point out the uh, intrinsic importance of generosity is talked about so much. And he, Bhikkhu Bodhi says, but I, I also wanted to point that out, generosity takes the form of giving, of material things, of our time, of our care, lending an ear, whatever form of giving. But the perfection of generosity, the quality of generosity that brings in this brightening, this uplifting of the mind, isn't about the action, but of course all action comes from the motivation, from the intention. And so it's this intention of giving that of course cultivates non-clinging, I mean, duh, but it it actualizes, it cultivates non-clinging. It also cultivates, and I'll talk more about this, uh, non-separation, a sense of mutuality, the experience of connectedness. And just in the doing of it, it's weakening the habits of greed and hatred and confusion or separation. So it may be the foundation for the Eightfold Path, but it's also in the practice of it, in the doing of it, in the opening to generosity. It is an actual practice of non-clinging, of connectedness, of non-delusion. And what I also, what I want to talk about from my own experience is what, is if it were the secret teachings of generosity, I mean, it's probably obvious, but to me, I didn't really understand this on a personal level, that it's an absolute practice of joy and happiness. It's such a happy way to be in the moment in the world. It's such a joyful way to be with other people. This generous heart and mind which naturally moves into metta, into connectedness. So, I, you know, in this culture I grew up, um, where of course I think this is a very generous culture in terms of you know, offering, taking in, whether we're in um, a church or a synagogue or a temple or a mosque in our religious traditions, but also just in, in the lay culture. How, you know, we all get seven billion, you know, requests from organizations a week in the mail. And, and you know, most people I know really give a lot in that way. So that's generosity. And it, it you know, you feel, I feel good about it, you know, but it's not that same quality of real joy that I've experienced over and over and over in Thailand and in Burma because it's like a face-to-face immediate quality of being that really permeates the culture, that permeates uh, just simple interactions between people, you know. So I just, I'll talk a little bit about that. Of course, it's not just in Thailand and Burma, that's just where I've done uh, a lot of practice and being Buddhist cultures the sense of generosity as the foundation for the whole of Buddhist practice is very deeply inculcated in the culture. But of course, 
generosity is everywhere, and Buddhism doesn't own generosity. I'm just talking from this, this perspective. I'm sure you know, you've heard a million times, how the Buddha, when he set up his Sangha of monks and later of nuns, that he really based it on generosity, on the mutual nature of generosity, so that the Sangha, the ordained ones, depended on the lay people and the lay people depended on the monks and nuns. Couldn't just kind of exist in isolation, either one. This is uh, from the Buddha. He's speaking to his monks. He says, Brahmins and householders are very helpful to you. They provide you with the requisites of robes, alms food, lodgings, and medicine in times of sickness. And you, monks, are very helpful to Brahmins and householders as you teach them the Dhamma that is good in the beginning, the middle, and the end. And you proclaim the spiritual life in its fulfillment and complete purity. Thus, monks, this spiritual life is lived with mutual support for the purpose of crossing the flood and making a complete end of suffering. And just the sense that we're all in it together. And from our mind, the idea of the monks and the nuns going out every morning with their bowls and kind of begging for food, I mean, that's the word we have, begging. It has a whole different context, doesn't it, begging than this sense of mutual support and respect and that we can't exist without each other. So even now in Burma, in Thailand, every morning in a monastery, early in the morning, the monks line up, always barefoot and always in order from the most senior to the most junior, and with their bowls and their alms bowls, not as big as that, but with their alms bowls, and they just, in silence, go out into the local villages and just walk in line barefoot for an hour, an hour and a half. They just kind of have their route. They don't look up. It's not about going to someplace and asking. They just go with their eyes out, and if someone comes and wants to offer, they open the lid, it's put in, and they keep going every morning. I don't know what it is. It's early morning, just after dawn, and there's something about the stillness in the air, but so often when I see that lining up and going out, I don't know, something that makes me cry. I feel like it's, you know, 2,600 years ago or something. It's timeless. It's a beautiful thing. And begging doesn't have anything to do with it. You know, it's not begging. People that give, they give because they're happy to give. There's that sense of mutuality. So it's very, very present in the culture. But the sense of happiness, the joy, really, the sense that after a while, you don't know who's giving and who's receiving because it's just a kind of joy and metta all around, hits me and strengthens in me every time I go to Burma or I go to Thailand. I first noticed it when I was a, I was a nun in Thailand for about a year, a long time ago. And I just went, la-di-da, I want to be a nun, practice in, in the woods, not have to pay anything, see what it's like, you know. And that's how we are. And I was... Um, so struck from the beginning with how generous people were to me as a Westerner. And in Thailand, it was not such a, at least where I was, not such a sense of poverty. Burma is a whole other story. But people were incredibly generous and so happy to be able to do anything to support my practice. 
But the thing that the remembrance I have in terms of the, the joy of generosity and the, the way that it opens the mind and heart to, to freedom, to letting go, is this um, forest monastery I was staying at for a while where there were monks and nuns. And so I was on the side of the river with some little kutis for nuns. And the head nun there was a young woman, a very sincere, dedicated practitioner, it was clear. So she was the senior kind of head nun. There weren't that many kutis, little huts for nuns. And the way it is in any of these uh, monasteries or, or meditation centers in Burma is you, you can say when you're coming and they'll kind of have a place for you, but at any time, at any day, people can just show up. That's just how it is. So this little nunnery, this little place in Thailand, it could be in my little hut, I had a little hut, and one day, you know, ten, ten women could show up one day. You just never know. And so I would notice in my mind, and I came from having been on staff at IMS and Barry, where in my mind is always this little fear, oh no, people are coming, I'm going to have to share my hut, I'm going to have to give up my hut, you know, I have it, you know. And I would just notice that tightness in my mind. But if anyone, any woman came, the first person to give up her hut was the head nun. Absolutely. I was never even approached to share, never mind give up. So she, as soon as people came, she would move out into the cave, share with another nun, whatever, happily, joyfully, immediately, that letting go, that sense of community, that sense of connectedness. And I would see how I was, <laughs> no, you know, don't come with me. <laughs> and I think to how we did this whole room game at IMS, the more senior you were on staff, the more you got to have the room you want and keep it, you know? <laughs> you get there, you dig in, you hold on. That's what seniority's about. <laughs> and over there, the more senior, the more generous, the more open. I said, hmm, <laughs> which way is the Dharma practice going here, you know? So it was inspiring. <laughs> When I was in a good space, it was inspiring. <laughs> it was a bad space, it was like, oh, you're stupid. Anyway. <laughs> but the last seven or eight years or so, I've been spending a month, about a month a year in Burma. And the first time I went, I was doing a retreat at a meditation center for about six weeks. And, uh, you know, just, I, I, I knew... I knew some people who were there, the, the nun who was taking care of foreigners, a Swiss woman who's been a nun there for years, friend of mine. And so it was, it was all very nice, very, very well taken care of. And it took a while for it to kind of um, surface in my consciousness. You know, something's going on, but the conscious words don't quite put it into words. But after some weeks, I began to, I was having a hard retreat, just stuff that was going on for me, not the environment. And the way they do the meals at that place is you, everyone, there's, you go into the dining room and um, all the meditators, Burmese men and women, laymen and women, and foreigners from all over the East, and, and some Westerners, laymen and women, the women and men at different tables. But you have the little round tables that hold three or four people, and everyone kind of has an assigned seat. And then the monks, of course, eat separately, too. And so in your, you're in your assigned seat, and you could pick a table, you could be vegetarian or not, which is already huge generosity. And at your seat, as you sit down, um, you know, the places are set, and then little bowls of food are put on the table for whatever there is that day. The food was lovely. There was always plenty of food, plenty of, I mean, a lot. It really was like, you know, a great restaurant in a way. And I was at a table with a couple of 
well, they were nuns. They're, I think they were Indonesian women. Uh, doesn't, that doesn't really matter. But one of them, she just kept asking for this and that, and I want some hot chilies. And the women who were working in the kitchen, some were lay women, some were nuns, they would come running and say, oh, you want chilies? And they would go running out, and I don't know where they went, to the garden or somewhere else, and they'd come running back with the chilies, you know. And, and, I think, and I'm thinking, she's a nun. You're not supposed to want extra stuff. That's what the Annunciation, you know, like, blah, blah, blah. And then but every day she'd be complaining. She'd ask for this, she'd ask for that. She'd want more butter on her bread and this. And unfailing kindness. And done not just with like a pretense of a smile, but happiness. They were so happy they could bring her the extra butter. They were so happy they had some chilies they could go find wherever they found them and bring them in and give to her every day. And it kind of, you know, slowly sank into me as I kind of came out of my grouchy self-involvement that this kind of uh, generosity of heart in supporting the practice and the happiness that it was bringing the people who were offering the generosity it starts to rub off on you. You know, you can only sit there and be grouchy and grumpy for so long. What's the matter? They're so stupid. And finally, you're like, they're really happy. Who's grouchy? Who's grumpy? Who's separate? You know, I'm just sitting here eating. Having, and so it starts to rub off on you. And I started to see, I was in silence, a yogi, so there wasn't that much I could do to interact. But even just in the silence, the generosity and the metta starts to brighten one's heart and mind. It starts to support one in one's practice. You're having like a gloomy day, you could just kind of look around and see the ladies who were working in the kitchen and how generously they were serving and the nuns and how, how generous they were in their time, in their energy. And it starts to soften the heart. It starts to brighten the mind. Okay, take a breath. I can keep going with my practice for today. So that was my first experience where I consciously began to notice it. And since then, I've seen every time I go to Burma that it's, it's, it's both in the monasteries and the nunneries between the ordained sangha and the lay people, but it's also just deeply imbued in the culture. And yes, this is a culture with probably one of the worst, most horrific, violent, hateful governments in the world as well. So I'm not saying everything's all peaches and cream. I'm saying within this culture, there's this spontaneous generosity and joy that comes with it that's absolutely contagious. That after a while, you know, you really, as I said, you can't tell who's being generous, who's receiving. You give and give and you think, wow, I'm just so happy. I wish I could give some more. So just little examples. Um, when I went this year, because of the cyclone in May, and there was huge destruction, huge destruction, of many villages down on this kind of lower delta, kind of southeast of Rangoon and Yangon, where mostly, mostly foreigners can't go there these days. Some NGOs can. And I don't want to get into all the politics of it and how the government didn't want to let people help and stuff. But still, there's still huge need down there, just of food, of shelter, of rebuilding schools, all kinds of stuff. So. I knew that the meditation center where I was going to stay this time, again, where my, the Swiss nun friend and my other nun friend were there, the, the Sayadaw, I think I mentioned him the other night at Windica, very compassionate, generous guy. And we knew that uh, in the summer, we, 
uh, Ariagnani, the Swiss nun, and some others of us just raised just some money from friends and sent it in, and they organized a lot of food donnas in various places and found ways to get the money into monasteries or other people who lived in the Delta that they could actually use it to build houses, to build it. Because you couldn't just give it to an NGO. The government wouldn't let them in. You have to find these weird ways in. Anyway, so we knew that he's, he was a really good guy, Sayadaw Lindica. So again, we did the same thing between all of us and all of our Dhamma friends at IMS and at CIMC and uh, in Switzerland and in Australia and brought in you know, some money. It turned out to be maybe $30,000. And Sayadaw Uindika, oh, we had it. We could decide what to do with it. We who brought it in, and representing all our Dhamma friends. But Uindika was a part of that, and so part of what we did, the women, was, we went and visited just in in the little area of where I was staying in this month. There was maybe twelve or fifteen small to medium-sized nunneries, extremely poor. Some with two or three nuns, some with up to 30 or 40 in little shacky bamboo houses you can't even imagine, and maybe just barely enough food. So we visited a lot of them, and Sayada Uindika organized a lot of uh, organized food donnas, rice to all the villagers in just in the area surrounding the, the monastery where we were staying, which is about 1,200 households, and then another much bigger uh, food offering of rice and beans and onions and soap powder and candles to some smaller villages down at the beginning of the delta where we went down one day car ride boat ride to a bunch of small villages and offered the food so it's very organized it's a very formal way that dana is offered and received and it's a beautiful thing so that's that's the the context where i was seeing some of this but I just want to describe this one nunnery and the sense of how generosity is just such a natural, generosity and metta, just such a natural expression in the culture. So this small nunnery we went to visit, again, tiny little bamboo, little bamboo house. You walk in and half the floor is so rickety that a couple of big, um, big guys came one time with us to visit and just basically broke the floor. I'm not kidding. And there's two, two nuns, Ma Utara Tangi and Ma Utama Tangi, and the one's early 40s, and two sisters, early 40s, mid-30s. And they were telling us, we went to visit them, and they, 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 these two sisters are running it. There's another uh, kind of grown nun, and then there's about 10 girls from, from one's a teenager, the others are like 10, 8, 9, down to 6. And when you see these, they're orphans, or they have one very poor parent. They all came from the Delta two years ago. And so these two nuns, and there's many, many nuns in Burma who are doing this, where they've basically taken in the, either these orphan little girls or little girls from such a poor one-parent family that the family can't provide for them. They take them in, and so since it's a nunnery, they become nuns, and they wear pink, so they're these little you can't believe they're so cute, you can't bear it. They're like this tall, they're in their little pink robes with their little pink sash, and they sit there and they're so cute, you just can't stand it. They're all, they're all over Burma. And uh, so the first time we went, the head nun, Utama, she's very um, outspoken, very bright, and she was just describing, she was saying to us, we, um, Aria could translate, with so much um, passion, 
that she said, these little girls, I just really want to give them a better chance in life. So they're educating them. She's teaching them Burmese. She's teaching them Pali. She's teaching them the Abhidhamma. You walk in this crummy little bamboo shack and there's a blackboard with Burmese and Abhidhamma and English lessons all over it. They get up at four. They start studying at six. They study all day. But they're happy. You know, they're having fun. They're not like, you know, beaten. And she was so passionately saying, you know, Little orphan girls in Burma, they just get abandoned or they get sold into servitude. You know, I know what it's like to be poor. I want them to have a better chance in life. And so they've completely devoted themselves, she and her sister, to, to taking care of these little nuns, educating them. And she was saying, you know, if, we get, if someone offers us a robe, you know, pink robe, that's really good because if we cut it up, we can get a little blouse for 15, 15 little blouses for the little girls. And you could just see, she talked about how they lose their slippers, they lose their umbrellas, so you have to buy a lot, you have to get offered a lot more slippers than just for a grown nun, you know, and just kind of day-to-day stuff, but so passionate about it. Turns out later, you know, it seemed like that maybe she'd taken that on as her mission in life. But later, when she was telling us her whole story, it really wasn't that that was how, how she started. I mean, there's a whole other story how and why she became a nun, which if I go into, I'm never going to finish this talk. But she and her sister became a nun when she was really sick. Her parents were about to sell everything they had to take care of her. She heard this in her mid-twenties. She said, no, that's no good. What can I do? She said, I'll become a nun. And her parents, far from thinking, yeah, great, get rid of her, they, they vehemently opposed it. You know, no, no, even though they would have had to sell everything. But... She insisted. Her sister agreed to ordain with her. Turns out her sister always wanted to be a nun. And she said she was so sick when she ordained that she would be lying there, and if she had her hand on her chest, she couldn't move it off. Or if her hand was lying down, she couldn't move it onto her chest. She was that sick. Two days after ordaining, she was all better. (laughs) Stories like this all over. Who knows? But anyway, and then they came from the Delta. They came up to Yangon. And they were in a study monastery and studying for a few years, which is what nuns do. They really study very deeply all the Pali scriptures, you know, and there's tests all over Burma uh, where the, they take these tests, nuns and monks. And once they've passed these tests, so there's some really very educated nuns, then they come and teach other little girls. They were doing that, but then the two sisters decided they really wanted to go meditate. They wanted to just dedicate themselves to awakening. So they're going to go to a meditation monastery. That's what they wanted to do. But just at that time, the Sayadaw down from their home village, who'd been sort of supporting them, died. And I, I don't quite, didn't quite get the, the, how this followed, but there were a bunch of little poor orphan girls. This was only two or three years ago. And he sent them all up to these two sisters. Now you have to take care of them. And totally, totally, they turned around. They dropped what they were going to do, went and found this piece of land, built this house themselves with their own hands, and completely are dedicating themselves with passion, with love, with affection. And you can see it when you're talking to them, the affection, to taking care of these little girls. Without you know any resentment, with total metta and dedication. And you just feel hanging out there, and when you go and offer, so you know we were just visiting nunneries and offering some of the money, you do it in a very formal way, face-to-face. You turn, you offer the money hand-to-hand. There's usually a photograph taken. So it's very kind of formal. 
And then just as you're doing that, then the nuns all chant, uh, or monks would do too, a metta chant, a long metta chant, and a kind of a blessings chant. Even the tiny little ones. It's, and they all know it. You know, it's so moving. It's like this sense of real communion, connected. You go away feeling like, wow. Like I said, who was giving? Who was receiving? It's just this kind of flow of mutuality of metta and, and dana. And it makes everyone is giving, everyone is receiving. It's not that sense of me offering so much. And it just, it, your heart lightens, it makes you happy, and it just, it kind of keeps on going. It keeps on going. It's just how the culture is. So when the cyclone hit and the government doesn't do much, you can see how so many monks, nuns, and lay people, anyone who had opportunity, their spontaneous movement was to find how they could go and help. It's just in the culture. So just a couple other examples. I mean, I could go on forever, but... I mentioned how we would, how Sayada Uindika organized some, some rice dana, some food dana. And one place was right in the village, right around where we were staying at the meditation center. And so the way it worked was very structured that each house would get like a little chit, you know, and then the people would come in, give their chit, and come and get the rice. But it was a real, again, it was this real formal, loving way they come. People kind of like dressed up. You know, they come in and it was a big event. And the people who are offering, it's not like you just, here's the rice, take the rice. They really, Sayada would say, I was taking a photo, he goes, no, give me your camera, Carol, you go offer the rice. Mm-hmm. And he hardly even speaks English, but suddenly he did that. He goes, if you're the one giving it, you need to have part of the giving is the actual face-to-face offering. It's so different from sending a check in the mail. I can't tell you, you know? And so people were kind of dressed up and you come and would offer the rice and you know, some people didn't even have like a crummy little plastic bag to put the rice in. Some crummy plastic bag that was used a hundred times. Some guys came and they were putting it in their shirt or their lungy. You know, that's how poor people are. So then they went away. You know, that was just it. You know, very. And then the next day, a friend of ours, a, a, a Mexican guy who was a monk there in Mexico, so he spoke English, so he, he would go out on the bindabat, on the alms round every morning, and he had been doing that for the past some months. So he said, you know, going on the alms round, you go on the same route, you kind of get to know the people and who offers, you know, it's, you know there's a reg- regularity to it. So he told us the next day after the rice offering, he said it was so, so touching. He said there were people who had never offered before, really a lot of them were out offering rice the next day because now they had rice to offer. Immediately they turn around and offer it back. It's just so beautiful. And he said there was like a little line of little kids, which he's sure someone organized, but still. So the little kids are very, and it's just very kind of just formal giving, you know? And so he just was, he was just full when he came back. And we were so happy that he could tell us that because we wouldn't, wouldn't have known. It's just there in the, in the culture. A year and a half ago there when um, there were the demonstrations and basically, as my teacher said, the government was shooting monks as well as other people and throwing them in jail. The biggest insult the monks could do was to refuse to accept offerings from the generals or from the military. That's like a huge insult. And there were times during the 
during the worst period when in the totally state-controlled newspapers, there'd be big pictures, you know, of the high generals offering something to some big monk, you know, just as a, as a show. But a lot of the monks, for a long time, they called it a strike, there's some word I don't remember, where they re- refused to accept offerings. And that is so uh, bad-looking for the people that it's refused that the, the, the less um, important monks, some were even arrested for that. But it's a huge thing to do, to stop the flow of mutuality, to not allow someone to give. And so as I said, it's not, it's not just wealthy people giving to poor people, it's everyone wants to share, like the people sharing back the rice. I was walking down uh, a village road between one meditation center and the other, it's like a 10-minute walk, and there's lots of, uh, lots of different kinds of little houses and cottages, and it was late in the evening, about six in the evening, so the kids were all kind of out playing, and you know, a little of them, they'd see me, oh, and just kind of laugh and run away, or whatever, just kids being kids. But just as I was walking, a little boy came up to me, very kind of nicely dressed little boy, very solemn, and so, so sincerely, he came up to me with this tiny little flower and bowed and handed it to me. Just that, it was like so touching. That was all. He didn't want anything else. You know, I just said thank you, and he went off. Like, you know, this is what the kids are learning. It's what the kids are learning. It's really so beautiful. And so as a friend of mine who had spent some time in Burma said, she, it, it's, it's, it creeps in. You don't quite notice how the, the generosity and the kindness, and just, just in little ways like that, you know, it's not the good, just offering that little flower. But that's still with me now. It made, I felt so happy, so touched, you know. It's kind of like the high point of my week. And I've had a nice week. And uh, <laughs> it's still, when I think about it now, it brightens my mind and heart. And I'm going to get to that. That sense of recollection is really important. Um, it creeps in, but then you start to notice how it's, it comes into you and you start just sharing that, wanting to share, coming more from metta, from generosity, quite spontaneously. It really is quite contagious. And she was saying, this friend of mine, when she got back home to Massachusetts, where people are kind and all, but it's not quite in such an open, spontaneous way in the culture, that she started, you know, she just kind of noticed, oh, oh it, it, you come home in this open space and it kind of fades a little bit. You have to kind of look harder how to be generous. You don't just drop in on people. I mean, over there, you just drop in, anyone drops in, you know. No one's going to walk up to me if I'm walking down in Fairfax, a little, you know, eight-year-old boy, and hand me a flower. I mean, that's just, I mean, you know, I'd fall over in shock if it happened there. It's just a different way. People are kind, but people are busy, and we're also busy, and we're doing our things, and we send our checks, and I'll call you up. And you're on my list. I really should call my friend who's suffering. Maybe I can get to it in five days. I'll have five minutes, you know. And we mean well, but there's not quite the flowing. It's not quite so alive. She was just saying she noticed that, and I do too. But I want to say it's not just Burma. It's absolutely not just Burma. Um, Oh, but I have so much. <laughs> I won't read that. But it's, it's every, just notice whenever you hear of someone being really generous, let it in and see how it affects your mind, how it affects your heart. It brings happiness. It doesn't have to be us. It just, 
lights it up. But again, the most important aspect isn't what's given or how we give, but the motivation. So like those generals having their pictures taken, offering to the monks. That's not the parami of generosity, you know. Even it doesn't matter how much you give, it's not about that. This is from the Buddha. Even if a person throws the rinsings of a bowl or a cup into a village pool or pond, thinking, may whatever animals live here feed on this, that would be a source of generosity, a source of blessings. So it's, it's not what, it's how. It's that open-hearted connectedness and generosity in the heart. And this shows up very clearly in some of the stories from the time of the Buddha about a man, a layman, a very rich layman named Anattapindaka, who was the foremost supporter of the Sangha at the Buddha's time. And uh, I just want to read a couple of short stories because they're very to the point about the importance of motivation. So he's the one, if if you've read suttas at all, you've noticed how many of them start with, thus have I heard, which means Ananda's telling it. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Savati in Jetavana, the monastery of Anattapindaka. A lot of suttas. Out of 45 years, the Buddha spent 19 of the range retreats in Anattapindaka's monastery. So Anattapindaka met the Buddha in the third year of the Buddha's teaching. And just very short, that I want to just read this little bit, like a synopsis of how he met him, because you see that his generosity came out of a huge faith, a huge brightening of devotion and love, not out of a should or it would be good or, you know, people will think well of me or I'll have a better life in the next world. The Buddha does talk often about generosity in terms of merit. You know, it's often spoken of that way in terms of if we do wholesome deeds now, I will, you know, experience the results of wholesome karma later in this life and in another life. And he talks about it that way a lot. But if you spend time like like in Burma or Thailand or even with with Anathapindaka here, you see, really, that sounds mercenary like to me, but the actual movement of generosity isn't about, oh, if I do this, let me offer to the Buddha so I can, you know, be reborn as a deva. That's not where Anathapindaka was coming from, but this welling up of faith. So it said he went, Anathapindaka hadn't even heard of the Buddha, and he went to his brother-in-law's house, who was also wealthy, his brother-in-law was preparing some huge feast and not the pinnacle. What's going on? And his brother said, the enlightened one is coming for tomorrow's meal. And then not the pinnacle said, he went, the enlightened one. Did you say the enlightened one? And he just got so excited. It just like hit him, you know. He just, he just felt, oh, even the sound of that is rare. He just got so happy. He said, can I go see him now? And his brother-in-law said, no, no, tomorrow would be good. So Anathapindaka went to bed and he was so excited. He kept waking up all night, you know, is it time, is it time? And finally he got up way in the middle of the night and just started walking in the dark way out into the country to where the Buddha was staying. And it said it was dark and he got overcome with fear and he started to feel doubtful and thinking, I should go back, I should go back. But it said a a spirit came and whispered in his ear, go forward, householder, Go forward. Going forward is better for you. Don't turn back again. 
ourselves, whether it's the spirit or whether it's our inner intuition, but something, you know, you just, you know, you just know you have to go forward. And he went, and it just got light, and he saw the Buddha walking in the distance, and he was just so, you know, just hit in his heart. And he fell at the Buddha's feet, and was so, like, overcome, he couldn't think what to say, and he just said, did the Blessed One sleep well? You know? <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't really, like, what to say to this guy. <laughs> and the Buddha, of course, gave him a, this is his verse, always indeed he sleeps well, the Brahmin who is fully quenched who does not cling to sensual pleasures, cool at heart, without acquisitions. Having cut off all attachment, having removed care from the heart, the peaceful one indeed sleeps well, for he has realized peace of mind. I think, oh, it really doesn't matter what you say. You know, you're going to get something good as a response from the Buddha. And so then he taught, not the Pindaka. And this is an example of what uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi was talking about, the step-by-step teaching. He, saw, he spoke to him on the, the virtues of giving, then of sila, of virtue, and of the, the perils of, se- of attachment to sense pleasure, the benefits of renunciation. And then this is what is often said. When he saw that Anatta Pindaka was ready in heart and mind, the mind was pliable, uplifted, serene, unobstructed, and he saw he was ready, then he gave him the teachings special to the noble ones, the Four Noble Truths. And he understood, uh, whatever has the nature of arising, all that has the nature of cessation. Anatta Pindaka had understood the truth of the Dhamma, had overcome doubts. He was now self-dependent in the Master's dispensation. He had realized the path and fruit of stream entry. That's how it's described. You get that sense, and it takes us back to the giving, that the recollection, the bringing the quality of generosity, of giving to our heart, to our mind, is one way in that actual moment of purifying the heart and mind, of it becoming unobstructed, uplifted, serene. Really very helpful, both the giving, the actual giving the service, the generosity, the receiving, the metta, and even just recollecting, which I will come to in a moment. But so then from that moment, Anatta Pindaka just became the most generous supporter. He invited the Buddha and 500 monks. It's always 500, just as Andy Olinsky says, that means a lot. Whenever they say 500, it means a lot of monks, a lot of nuns. Um, and then he, he said, let me offer you a monastery, and he went back and searched and found this Jeta's Grove, bought it at a humongous price and offered it. And he became the most, um, the biggest supporter. But then, and this is again of the importance of the motivation, his motivation was real faith, upliftedness of heart and love with no self-involvement or self-return at all. So there's a story later that after he, just, he established the monastery, when the Buddha and monks would be living there, he was always in Natta Pindaka, completely supporting of them. He would send rice gruel in the morning. He would send them medicines and clothing and stuff in the evening. And every day, every day for the main meal, he would have several hundred monks come daily to his house. So his place was always filled, it says, with saffron robes and the perfume of saintliness. <laughs> so 
He lived in the realm of King Pasinati, who was also a devotee of the Buddha. So when King Pasinati learned of Anathapindaka's generosity, he wished to imitate him. So he also began to supply alms and food for 500 monks every day. But one day, he learned from his servants that the monks would come and they would be offered the food from his servants, but then they would go into the village and, offer, and, and hand the food that was offered from the king to their supporters, and then the supporters would give it back to them. And so King Pasinati said, what's going on? Why is that happening? I mean, there's nothing wrong with the food. I'm supplying the best, most tastiest, most refined food you could have. But the Buddha explained. He said that in, in the king's palace, his servants, his courtiers, they distributed the food without any inner feeling. They were just doing it as a job, like cleaning out the stables. And some of them, in fact, even thought, these monks, they're just parasites, you know, and we're doing the work. And he said, you know, nobody can be comfortable accepting anything given in that spirit. So the monks would take the food not to do the, you know, the harsh thing of refusing it, because that's not generous. But then they would give it to their devoted supporters who would give it back with faith, with real generosity, and then they could accept it. So even the most richest, generous person, it's not about how much you gave, it was about the spirit, about the heart. That's really, really the practice of generosity. Okay, I'll do this a little quick. There's... um, once I, I heard a talk from uh, a Nepalese monk, Unyanapanika, who was teaching with Sayadaw Pandita at INS one year. And he gave this talk, a lovely talk on generosity. He gave kind of like seven little points of practice, how to act, actually practicing uh, bringing awareness to times when you're offering, whether it's service or time or material goods. Just some act, act so I just want to share that. So the first is obvious, attention to the volition, attention to your motivation in giving, so that you really purify it before giving. That's I should give this here, you know. Really purifying it. Like the generous act of the bodhisattvas is, with this act, may all beings be free from suffering. You know, it can even get broader. But really tuning into that. And also, whatever one is giving, really in the giving, that's the same thing, you're purifying the motivation, really abandon the clinging to it. Really be happy that you're giving it. If it's your time, if it's money, if whatever, be happy that you're giving it. And then Upandita said, and this is what I really have learned from the times in Burma, if it's at all possible, directly giving and receiving, you know, face to face, in person. It brings such a sense of a more powerful sense to it. It increases the awareness of your interrelatedness. I found he actually gave me this personal lesson where I was like, you know, sometimes almost embarrassed to give someone a gift. Either it's not good enough or you don't want them to, you don't know what, just kind of embarrassed. And so I had bought him a gift when I was on retreat and had someone else give it to him. And when I came out of retreat, he called me over and said, no, he made me give it to him hand to hand so that he could really receive it wholeheartedly. And he said also so that you're giving it with confidence, with real faith, with real generosity, it brings a real power of confidence into the act. And again, as I described with the nuns, when you give something, and they all stand there and chant for five minutes, it just, you just get goosebumps. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. 
Give with the mind, this is obvious, when you're giving or talking or sharing, do it with the mind or the heart focused on the giving. Just being mindful, being present, that's obvious. And as I said, there's a way in the formality of how it's done in Burma that really enhances this, that really helped me see when you do it, you really are doing it with this real sense of the beauty and the power of the whole act of the giver and the receiver, the power of it for both. You don't just say, well, here's the money, see you later. You know? And it's taught. It's taught to the kids. In, in one of the um, donas that we did when we went, to, where we, we went down to some small villages in the upper delta, and in one of these villages, we went to the, the small schoolhouse because Sayada Uindika apparently loves to give what he calls candy dana. He loves to buy candy bars and then give one out to each of these little kids. So he, he was getting a total kick out of it. So we go, it was a schoolhouse, and the teachers were there. The schoolhouse is like a crummy little wood thing with nothing, nothing there. And I don't know, there might have been like 60 or 70 little kids from tiny, tiny little kids to maybe, you know, maybe 11 or 12 years old. And there were the teachers there, three or four young women teachers. And so when we went in, they had the kids were all sitting, you know, kind of, I guess, sort of in age order, very sitting very carefully. And we would have to line up and have our little, you know, one of us would have a little, like, sucker candy. One of them would have a little candy bar, and then we'd rotate, you know, so that everyone had a chance to give and receive. And then the teachers would have each kid up, come up one at a time. And you could see this is really where they're learning it. The little, even the tiny little kids, they come, and some would be all distracted, you know, and they just want to grab it and run, and the teachers would very gently come and, you know, say, oh, take the candy. Others came, and they were just so, you know, sincere, and they'd just come up very solemnly and look at you and take the candy, you know, and go away, you know. And it was, but you could see how they were teaching it. Another place we went that same day, the same kind of candy, Donna, but it was offered just in the monastery, and all the village kids just came running in. It wasn't under the auspices of the school or the teacher. And the whole, I don't know, somehow the whole town felt kind of a bit wilder. And so it was the same thing. First, we couldn't even get the kids to line up. Finally, we got them to line up, but it was that, this, you know, this fever of greed. You know, it's just a lousy little candy bar. And they were doing like, they'd get it, then they'd run to the back of the line, you know, and get in line again. And there were so many of them, we couldn't tell, you know. And, some had these little like rubber bands around their wrists, and my friend gets like, I've seen that rubber band before. <laughs> He's been here before. You know? And we couldn't tell. It was just so. Finally, we had to make them all sit down and stay sitting down, you know, and then go down the line. And you could see they hadn't really, it was different. It was just kind of mob scene. And at the end, you can really see, well, this is, goes into another, where there needs to be clear comprehension of the giving in the broader context that giving what doesn't hurt oneself or hurt another, what's really of value, what the giving and the receiving is in terms of fostering wholesomeness, not unwholesomeness. So what I say, at the end of this, we had a few little candies left, and then all the, and somehow structure broke down. And it wasn't the kids, it was the adults. One of my friends was standing there holding like this little bag of these little, like a little hard candy, right, nothing. And the adults, they started by kidding, but then it wasn't kidding, and it just felt like this frenzy of greed to get, it felt awful. It really, to me, it felt awful. And it felt like this isn't really right generosity because what it's feeding is greed. And you could just see, it didn't feel the same at all. 
no metta. I mean, no big deal, you know, it's just a sucker, but the difference between the two feelings. And so the sense of the formality and the sense of understanding, the clear comprehension from the Buddha again. How a person of integrity gives a gift. These are five five qualities are person of integrity's gifts. Which five? A person of integrity gives a gift with a sense of conviction. A person of integrity gives a gift attentively. A person of integrity gives a gift in season. A person of integrity gives a gift with an empathetic heart. A person of integrity gives a gift without adversely affecting himself or others. Himself or others. A gift in season, just to tell you what that means, five seasonable gifts. One gives to a newcomer. One gives to one going away. Which I've noticed, you leave a monastery, everyone comes with little gifts. One gives to one who is ill. One gives in time of famine. And one sets the first fruits of field and orchard in front of those who are virtuous. These are the five seasonable gifts. Lovely, huh? And not adversely affecting oneself or others. There's another story from Anathapindaka, who was say, incredibly generous uh, to the Buddha, the Sangha, also, because he had so much faith, he was really virtuous, you know, and he lived a very pure life. And it said it really affected his whole family. It affected all the people he came in contact with. You know, that the whole sphere around someone who's generous starts to affect the people around. Purity, happiness, love, it, it's contagious. And so it infected his family and his friends. And he was generous to all of them. But he also had this sense of, you know, giving where it's appropriate, where it's useful in the right time and not to the detriment. So there's one story of out of all his family, he had one nephew who, way he inherited a huge fortune, but he squandered it all on drinking and gambling and womanizing. Then he came to Natapindika and asked for a thousand gold pieces to start a business. Natapindika gave it to him, squandered it all. Then he came back again, second time, asked more, and this time without a single condition, Anattapindika gave him five times as much. Squandered it all again, completely squandered it all. Came back a third time with no shame, begged for, for money. This time Anattapindika gave him two pieces of clothing, but he squandered those two, sold them for everything. Then finally, the fourth time he came, Anattapindika told him to leave, gave him nothing. So if he'd been just a beggar, he wouldn't never have left the house without anything, if he'd been just a hungry person. But he wasn't money wasn't for alms, but just to squander. And so then his, his uh, nephew just kept on that way, and he wasn't willing to beg, and he died wretchedly, you know, outside the gates of the village. And of course, Anatta Pindaka felt terrible. You know, what should I have done? I should have been able to save him. And he went to the Buddha, told him this whole story, and asked, should I have done differently? It's interesting. The Buddha said, no, no. He said, you couldn't have done anything different. He said, that nephew belonged to the fortunately small number of insatiable people who are like bottomless vats. He perished because of his reckless behavior. You wouldn't have been able to save him. 
I think that's interesting. It's just interesting how even as generous as Anatta Pindaka and as powerful as the Buddha, generosity can't save everybody. And there's that sense of at some point there's discernment in the generosity. And I just find that quite interesting. So just to end, the last thing I want to say is about this contemplation, this way of uh, using the uh, contemplation, the practice and the recollection of generosity to brighten, to uplift, to purify the mind, to then to support our discerning practice. And there's a couple of suttas that point to this. The Buddha said, if the heart is corrupted, then all actions, words, and thoughts get tainted also. So there's one point where he's talking to nuns and then uh, talking to Ananda and saying, he gives this example, I'll condense it, where if a person is abiding, contemplating body is body, this is the four foundations of mindfulness, body is body, feelings is feelings, mind, mental states is mental states, mind is mind, ardent, fully aware, mindful. So this is straight from the Satipatthana Sutta. But as this is happening, it can happen with a body and any of the four that an object arises or a bodily distress that's unpleasant or mental sluggishness or some unpleasant experience that scatters his mind outward. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> the mind just got... Then the monk or the meditator should direct her mind to some, this is translated as satisfactory image. And I'll say what that means is satisfactory image, which doesn't mean just let's just think about eating chocolate cake. It means something, you know, wholesome. And from this directedness of mind to a satisfactory image, happiness is born. From the happiness, joy is born. With a joyful mind, the body relaxes. A relaxed body feels content. The mind of one content becomes collected. And then the meditator reflects, the purpose for which I directed my mind to this satisfactory image has been accomplished. So now I will withdraw. So it's basically calling in a particular wholesome, uplifting contemplation to help to collect and uplift and bring serenity to the mind when we're just lost. Not that we just don't like what's happening. We're lost, right, in what's happening. And then no longer focusing on that, inwardly mindful of whatever arises, I am content. So then not directing his mind outward, he understands not focused on before or after, just present with what's arising right now. I am mindful. I am content. That's undirected meditation. More like what we're calling choiceless awareness here. So take that sense of some satisfactory image and then put it together with this other sutta where the Buddha talks about six very helpful recollections. One of them being when you recollect your own generosity. The others are recollecting the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, your own sila or morality, your own generosity, or the devas. So for, for us, I'm just going to talk about generosity, just say what he says about it. It's this exact same thing of calling up a satisfactory image. When you recollect your own generosity, and even the generosity of others will do the same thing sometimes, 
you think it's a great gain for me that among people overcome with a stain of possessiveness, I live at home. My aware- this is, so this is to lay people, not just monks and nuns. I live at home, my awareness cleansed of the stain of possessiveness, freely generous, delighting in being generous, responsive to requests. At any time when a disciple of the noble ones is recollecting generosity, her mind is not overcome with greed, not overcome with aversion, not overcome with delusion. Her mind heads straight based on generosity. And when the mind is headed straight, the disciple of the noble one gains a sense of the purpose, gains a sense of the Dhamma, gains joy connected with the Dhamma. In one who is joyful, rapture arises, the body grows calm, the same thing. Experiences ease, in one at ease, the mind becomes collected. So you get a sense how powerful this is. The recollection of your own generosity is not an ego trip. It's actually in this moment, purifying the heart and mind, making it pliable, uplifting it, ready to open to the true Dhamma. So just end. So he says, so you, Mahanama, who is a layperson who asked him, you can develop this recollection of generosity while you are walking, while you are standing, while you are sitting, while you are lying down, while you are busy at work, while you are, re- are resting in your home, crowded with children. In other words, no excuse not to do it. And why would we want to not do it? It brings happiness. It opens us to the purity of the Dhamma. So I'll just end with a story of that. The man who would cook for us at these retreats in Chaswa would work so hard, get up at 2 in the morning, cook all day, go an hour into the market and back just to get special food to cook for the Westerners on retreat. Not a spiritual guy. He was a cook for a big bakery in the city. But so filled with metta. And we'd say, don't work so hard. Don't get up so early. Take some rest. And he'd say, no. Everything we do is from dana intention, from metta intention. Everything we do. And that gave he and the kitchen staff so much energy and so much love. So it brings virya, it brings this open-hearted uplifting of mind, and it brings happiness to oneself and others. Great source of joy and goodness in this world. So let's just sit quietly for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.